Hello and welcome to episode five of Silver Screeners, a podcast that's devoted to the love of the movies, all of them, the comedies, the dramas, the new releases, the classics. But as always, I do follow the words of wisdom from actress Lauren Bacall, one of my favorite quotes ever, at least of those pertaining to cinema. She said, it's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. So you won't hear me calling any movie old, dated in style maybe, or nostalgia-inducing for another time, and yeah, maybe you'll even hear me say the words classic or legendary or iconic, but never old. I'm Frank, coming at you from Massachusetts, and thank you for hitting that play button. It's hard to believe that this is the fifth episode. You know, I've been, I've been putting these shows out once a week for the past month, and I can now officially say that I can count fully on one hand how many episodes there are at this point. Who knew, right? Well, the past two episodes focused primarily on two films that could be called coming-of-age stories, 1967's The Graduate and 1973's American Graffiti. Well, I mean, I don't know if The Graduate can really be called coming-of-age, that's debatable, but both films, they do center around characters who are at a crossroads in life and are questioning where they go next. So for today's episode, I want to conclude this theme of the quote-unquote next chapter in life and call it a cinematic hat trick with a look at a 1986 film that went on to become the 13th highest grossing movie that year, grossing over $52 million, a sentimental generational favorite, an Academy Award nominee for Best Adapted Screenplay, and if I remember clearly enough, a constant absence from the video stores once it hit the shelves in March of 1987, I think it was. Any listeners out there who are old enough to remember the agony of disappointment when you walk into a video store and you saw the VHS cover on the shelf, but instead of the VHS tape itself behind it, just this thing of tumbleweed rolling by in the breeze to the theme of the good, the bad, and the ugly, and you know exactly what I'm talking about here. The film in question is, yes, the coming-of-age story, Stand By Me, based on the Stephen King story, The Body, which is, let's face it, a bit more morbid of a title. But first my two cents on today's episode's featured upcoming release. One that, along with upcoming releases in the same genre, just might make me eat my words if they turn out to live up to their their hype. What I mean is that I've always said that I'm not the biggest fan of musicals. It takes a lot to get me to sit through a butt-numbing song and dance number that stretches into the 11th hour. I've seen my fair share and I won't mention those that aren't really my cup of cappuccino, but there are definitely exceptions, so I do give it up happily for The Wizard of Oz and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, The Who's Tommy, Rent, and The Greatest Showman. But about 10 years ago, about, uh, yeah, about 10 years ago, we spontaneously went into town one weekend to see this show by this guy, Lin-Manuel Miranda, called In the Heights. I'd heard of it. It debuted on Broadway in New York City a few years earlier, but I knew squat about it. I just knew that we were hopping in the car and driving up the expressway into Boston to go see this stage production with a cast of characters who are first generation immigrants to the US from Cuba, the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico and the barrio they live in in Northern Manhattan. It takes place over the span of a few really hot days in the summertime, a heat wave. It's a really, it was a really entertaining and energizing slice of life with really catchy hip hop soundtrack. I was shocked that I enjoyed it as much as I did. If I had to select one song from the soundtrack, my top one would definitely be Carnaval del Barrio, which is sung by pretty much the entire cast. 
Uh, I'm going to put myself on the line here and admit that I find in the Heights, at least the Boston stage production that I saw, I found that to be catchier than Hamilton. I, I don't know. Is that bad? Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda did both. And hopefully I did not just alienate a few listeners in saying that. I'm not saying I dislike Hamilton. I'm just saying that given the choice between the two, I think I would actually go within the Heights. Now I've been reading the reviews of the upcoming film version of In the Heights and they have been mostly positive. So I do have hopes that this could be a game changer for me in terms of, in terms of movie musicals. If anything, I will say that it will be refreshing to see authenticity in terms of the depiction of the fashion and the, the culture and the, the music with real Latino actors in these roles instead of an uncomfortably heavily made up Natalie Wood portraying a, an immigrant from Puerto Rico and West Side Story. In the Heights was filmed on location in the real Washington Heights in New York City, so I can only imagine how great that's going to look on screen. So if you're not familiar with In the Heights, check out the song Carnaval del Barrio on YouTube and get ready to fall in love with the character Abuela, who is the honorary grandmother of the characters in the neighborhood. Catch the film when it releases in the States and in Canada on June 11th, the UK and Ireland on the 18th of June, and in the Netherlands and Belgium, Singapore, Germany, and Japan in July. In the Heights. And now, let's round the corner to the announcement of the winners of last episode's trivia question. Last time, we talked about 1973's American Graffiti, the one that brought George Lucas Oscar nominations for Best Screenplay and Best Director four years before he did his gee whiz little space fantasy adventure that you may have heard of, Star Wars. And for answering correctly, that Lucas's directorial debut was THX1138. A shout out and congrats to Zach from down in Florida at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. To my friend Drew, who's got his own YouTube channel, type in Drew Bennett, where he's got a daily vlog on life, family, uh, entertainment, travel, uh, comic books, video games, and especially toys. It's all there, and it's great stuff, so check it out. Drew Bennett. You'll know you reached it when you see a logo saying Ben Spock Family Adventures. Drew, thanks for playing, and catch up with you real soon. And also answering correctly are my friends from across the pond over in Britain, Stu and Al. This is three for three, I think. Uh, they have a podcast of their own called Stu and Al Pod. And everyone, give a listen to their show, Stu and Al Pod, which releases a new episode every two weeks. It's got comedy. It's got nostalgia for the 1990s. It's got top three countdowns of everything from sandwiches to punk bands. So thank you to all of you, Zach, Drew, Stu and Al. And a personalized meme from THX1138 is coming your way. So keep an eye open in your inboxes or private social media messages. And thank you for playing. Okay, for all you listeners, let's have some fun with today's trivia question. And here it is. Stand By Me was directed by Rob Reiner, who was an actor who, before becoming a director, was probably best known as the meathead. Mike Stivick on the 1970s comedy series All in the Family. One year after Stand By Me, 1987, he directed another film. Pat fantasy, Pat comedy, Pat adventure. It was a box office misfire when it first came out, but has an extremely devoted following now. You've heard of it and could very well be able to quote from it too. I'll give you just one hint. It is 
a film quote. It's a quote. Have you ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Morons. So for a personalized meme and a shout out, email your guesses to frankmendoza at yahoo.com. You can post a private message me on Twitter. The Twitter handle is filmbuff1974, or you can just search my name, Frank Mendoza, and that is spelled with an A and an S. You can also join or post to my public Facebook film group, same name as this show, Silver Screeners. And if you want to get in touch the Instagram way, that's frankmendoza1974. And even if you give the wrong answer, or you know, hell, if you don't give an answer at all, if you just simply want to say hello, you want to offer your feedback on this show if you want to agree or disagree with my take on anything that i talk about if you want to give me some recommendations or if you have any requests you'll get a mention you will get a mention whether you have anything to promote or not you don't have to be a a podcaster a musician a painter a sculptor a writer or an aspiring whatever to to play along just have fun with it i'd love to be able to offer a trip to hawaii and a new car for the prizes instead of a meme but you know, budget cuts. So uh, stand by me. Stand by me. Let's dive in. Released in the summer of 1986, based on the story, The Body, written by Stephen King. And it is the story of four of four friends on Labor Day weekend. They are on the cusp of beginning junior high school for the first time. And they are all in their own ways. They are all outsiders they don't know who they are they most of them come from troubled families fractured family units and and this you know has an impact on their self images and the way that they relate to each other the way that they relate to themselves and they hear that there is a missing teenager who is presumed killed by a train and so they decide that they are going to go and basically go on this odyssey that they're going to go hiking through the woods of Oregon where it takes place and they are going to find this body and their goal is to become heroes to get their pictures in the paper to be the heroes that that find the body that give the family of this kid closure and as morbid as it may sound especially since it's written by Stephen King the, the novella that is this is not a horror story this is this is a coming of age drama. They're all 12 years old, though I have to admit some of the actors, particularly Jerry O'Connell, Jerry O'Connell, who was 11 at the time, who was very convincing, uh, he, more convincing as a 12 year old than say River Phoenix, who was, I think he was 14 at the time of filming. Corey Feldman, Corey Feldman was 12. He was hot off the Goonies and Gremlins and that classic Friday the 13th, the final chapter. And then we have Will Wheaton, who was, I believe, 13 during production. So I mentioned that it is set in the state of Oregon, and it's 1959. It was actually filmed there, too, over the span of 60 days in Oregon. Of the four characters, out of the four of them, I would say that Jerry O'Connell, who plays Vern, his character is probably the slimmest one. He's not there purely for comic relief, but pretty close to it, at least compared to the other three characters. He's there to serve as Corey Feldman's punching bag, if you will, literally. Uh, O'Connell, he had never acted before. He had done one commercial, but this was his first film. He'd go on to star in films like Screen 2 and Piranha 3D and Scary Movie 5, but he's also done a lot of quality TV work. 
Corey Feldman. Corey Feldman, he plays Teddy Duchamp, a kid who is really hurting badly. He has an abusive father, and there's actually a scene early in the film where it's hinted that he's prone to taking foolish risks with his life, sort of suicidal thoughts. Rob Reiner, who directed the film, Rob Reiner said that Feldman was the only actor who auditioned who had the rage and the anger to be able to play this role. And that's largely because Feldman himself came from a, from a troubled family. Uh, he auditioned with the scene that is in the film where he faces off against the junkman, where he is you know, scaling the fence and they're hollering, hollering threats to each other. That was the scene Feldman used in his audition. And it's probably in the entire film, the scene where he is given the chance to emote the most. So, okay, it's 1959, they're 12 years old, just like Rob Reiner was in 1959, he was 12. In fact, he pulled a lot of their conversations and a lot of their idiosyncrasies from his own childhood. There's a couple of scenes where they're singing the theme from Have Gun, Will Travel, a recurring thing throughout the film is they'll say to each other, give me some skin as they shake hands and sort of like rub their palms. The subtle touches like that, that, that bring these fictional kids to life. That's all from Rob Reiner's own childhood. One thing though, that is not legit in the film is the cigarette smoking. Reiner, who is famously anti-tobacco, he had them all using lettuce leaves, not tobacco. So there's a little bit of movie magic there where it looks like they're, they're inhaling you know, nicotine. Uh, some of the older actors in the cast include Kiefer Sutherland, who is the quote-unquote cheap dime store hood, as Will Wheaton calls him in the film. And you have the great Richard Dreyfus, the grown-up version of Will Wheaton's character. Dreyfus narrates the story. Interesting thing is that Dreyfus was a last-minute replacement. His scenes had already been shot with another actor, a lesser-known actor named David Duke, who was replaced when they decided that Duke's voice did not fit in well with the voiceover narration that they had in mind. So he was let go. They actually considered Michael McKeon at one point, Lenny from Laverne and Shirley, and Mr. Dittmeyer from the Brady Bunch movie. Uh, but Richard Dreyfus and Rob Reiner, they went to high school together. They went to the movies together all the time as kids. So that's how that came about. That's how Dreyfus came on board. Getting back, though, to the four main actors, the kids, Rhino wanted them to become familiar with each other, to develop a camaraderie that would, that would really show up well on screen. So what he did before they, before they began filming, he shuffled them off to have two weeks of rehearsal. He put them up in a hotel. The first week was more theater games and trust exercises to get them to, to get to know each other. Then the second week was actually rehearsing scenes from the screenplay, acting lessons, working with Rhina on character development, and not all film productions will invest that kind of time and money into that kind of preparation, which is really too bad because when you take the time to invest in all of that, just all of that mental work that is channeled into real chemistry, real magic on screen, it does, it does work wonders. And it's a good call. It's a good call because in the final product of Stand By Me, there is legit chemistry among all four of them. I mean, it really, it really does work. You forget that you're watching child actors performing for a camera. 
this is one of those instances where there is not one weak link in the bunch, really. I can remember back when this was a new release, reading in a magazine that Will Wheaton said that he and River Phoenix, that he and River Phoenix were best friends in the whole world, he said. Uh, good thing there was no professional competitiveness between them, which very easily could have been the case because you know, who knows how that would have how that would have affected their on-screen dynamic. They really they have a few really tender scenes that hold up well, even now, 35 years later. There is one scene where Phoenix has a sobbing fit as he is relating to Will Wheaton's character how his teacher betrayed his trust and reinforced in him the notion that he's no good, that he's headed for nowhere. To prepare for that scene, Rhina took Phoenix aside and said to him, think about something that's personal to you. Think about when a trusted adult let you down, maybe even lied to you. And he said, you don't have to tell me what it is. Just think about that and let that guide you. And Phoenix got so caught up in it. All of those tears were real. And even after Rhina called cut, River Phoenix continued crying after the scene. Rhina went over, gave him a big hug, told him he loved him, comforted him. Rhina was an actor's director. And before you think this was uh, anything that River Phoenix took offense to later on, once he collected himself, it was not. He spoke very high. They all four of them spoke very highly of Rob Rhina as a real actor's director. That scene, along with the campfire scene that comes right before it, the one where they're talking about everything from TV quiz shows to wagon train to Sherry Pez to <laughs> what is Goofy? You know, Donald's a duck and Mickey's a mouse. What the hell's Goofy? Uh, that scene and River Phoenix's big moment, those were all shot indoors. And the reason why was because you could not shoot because of child labor laws. You could not shoot too late outdoors with minors. So all of that that you see, it was not filmed in the middle of real woods. That's all studio lighting. That's more Hollywood magic. Also shot indoors was what I think personally is one of the film's more jarring sequences. Uh, really doesn't fit in with the tone of the rest of the story. It feels like it's from a whole different movie. I didn't like it then. I don't really like it now. Will Wheaton's character's made up story about a kid named Lardass. <laughs> um, Rob Reiner, looking back on it, says that that was a sequence that he had real apprehensions about. Basically, it is Will Wheaton's character saying, so the once upon a time, there was this really obese kid. Everybody called him Lardass. They were cruel to him. And so he decided to exact his revenge upon everybody who makes fun of him. And so he enters this pie eating contest. If you've seen Stand By Me, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you have not seen Stand By Me, I don't want to give away too much. All I'll simply say is, is that Rob Reiner was nervous about putting this in because he felt that Will Wheaton's character, who would go on to become this very accomplished writer, his feeling was he wouldn't tell a story this crass, this vulgar. He would tell a story that has a little bit more substance to it because that's the kind of character he is. And I have to admit, I completely agree with Rob Reiner in that regard. It just does not seem in line with the kind of kid Will Wheaton's character was. I remember watching Stand By Me Years after I first saw it, years after it was first released, I remember watching Stand By Me in college. A group of us were watching it. And I can remember one of my friends at that scene, at that point in the film, 
chuckling and saying pretty much the same thing. I remember him saying, and I quote, I remember, I remember these exact words, it's such a bad story, he said, about the Ladass story. But it went over well with preview audiences, and it was in Stephen King's original story, so it stayed in the film. I'm going to say that, yeah, <laughs> it is incongruous with the rest of the film. It does feel tacked on for no apparent reason, but that aside, in aggregate, this is a movie that really clicks. It's not just a product of the 80s. It's one that people can watch now and they can be just as moved, just as unnerved, just as shaken. At the end of the film, they return home and Dreyfus's, Richard Dreyfus's voice comes on and he says what is, for me, one of the most hauntingly beautiful lines in the whole film. He says, we had only been gone two days but somehow the town seemed different, smaller. And who does not feel that way when they reach a crossroads in life? So the original story, as Stephen King wrote it, is The Body. The title was changed for the film to Stand By Me. It was, of course, taken from the song, the 1961 song. It was number one then, and then it was number one again in 1986 because it was used in the movie. The MTV music video, with River Phoenix playing a guitar and Will Wheaton <laughs> earnestly dancing with him and with Benny King, but really having rhythm that's not worth a dime. <laughs> but it's fun to watch. Uh, it's a great music video, very much, very dated. I mean, it was the mid eighties after all, but I do have to bring up one last thing. It's probably disrespectful not to acknowledge the premature death of River Phoenix in 1993 seven years after Stand By Me came out. The, without, again, without giving anything away, at the end of the film, uh, he disappears from sight. And that is just too eerily prophetic. It is one of those instances where truth really is stranger than fiction. Now, there have been a number of cases that have been called Hollywood's so-called most shocking moments. For example, the murder of Sharon Tate in 1969, uh, River Phoenix's death, Heath Ledger's death, uh, Rebecca Schaefer, her death, she was shot by a stalker and he showed up at her front door, rang her doorbell, she answered it and he shot her. She was probably most known for the TV sitcom My Sister Sam with Pam Dauber of Mork and Mindy fame and the lyrics to the theme from My Sister Sam YouTube it. It begins with everything starts with a knock at your door. You don't know who it is, but you know who it's for. That's just freaky. So where I'm going with this is that when you have these tragic, premature, sometimes violent deaths of these very young celebrities who still have their whole lives and careers ahead of them, you know, they never age because they never had the chance to. So it gives the body of work that they leave behind this additional mystical quality. They're cemented in our minds permanently as these young people. So maybe that's part of the reason why they, you know, their memories live on and they develop these very devoted followings. I mean, here we are now, it's 2021. James Dean died in his car crash and September of 1955, and people still know who James Dean is. Maybe they have not necessarily seen his films, but they know at least who he is. So River Phoenix, 
did a lot of great work. He went on to become an Academy Award nominee. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for 1988's Running on Empty. Great film, by the way, if you haven't seen it. I'm probably going to do an episode on that one eventually. And I will close out by lightening the mood with a question to throw out there for you. And you'll know it from the film when you hear it, but I really am curious to hear your thoughts. Do you think Mighty Mouse can beat up Superman? So there you have Stand By Me, the movie that my eighth grade class voted the class favorite, as well as Jennifer Grey for favorite actress and Arnold Schwarzenegger as favorite actor. So thank you for tuning in. I hope that you liked this look back at a film that helped to define its generation, but not just its own. It really is a coming of age story for the ages. So don't forget to get in touch with your answers to the trivia question for with any requests for topics for future shows, share your thoughts on Stand By Me, disagree with anything that I said, or simply to talk movies. I'm always happy to hear from you. Until next time, keep on screening, and I will see you.